Welcome to This Is My Story, where everyday women share their stories of struggles and setbacks that have shaped their lives. I'm your host, Melissa Touch. In today's episode, my childhood friend Tiffany Sumrall, now a therapist, mom, and wife, shares with us not only her story of struggles and heartaches, but her story of miracles. She touches on the loss of her twin brother at the age of three, her search for her biological father, the pain of infertility and miscarriage, her journey to parenthood, the ending of her 18-year-long marriage, and more. Join me for an intimate and candid conversation as Tiffany shares her deeply personal and inspiring journey of resilience, growth, and the pursuit of authentic happiness. Before we dive into today's episode, don't forget to follow us on our social media and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. You can find all our social media links as well as more information about us at thisismystorypodcast.com. My name is Tiffany and this is my story. I don't think I've talked to you since high school. It, yeah. it is crazy. That is right. so long ago. And the people that I haven't talked to in a long time that I'm interviewing, their voices sound different to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, in my head, you sounded different. You like my memory, you sounded different. <laughs> or maybe that's right. just growing up and maturing and using a little bit of a professional voice, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. I also don't live in Louisiana anymore, and so probably my southern accent's waned quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And so that makes a big difference. But I don't think you sound the same either, but I think we capture people in our memories based – and so that's how you sound to me. You sound like my middle school best friend. Yes. Not not adult (laughs) mom – Melissa. Yeah, I know. It's crazy how you like, yeah, everybody is just frozen in this one time. And then you're like, wait, that's not how they are anymore. They've grown up. But you mentioned middle school best friend. I do have to say, thinking back, because I I always try to think of, you know, what is something I can say at the beginning of every interview? Because these are all people I know that Mm kind of builds in how I know this person and kind of just brings back some memories. You, oh my gosh, I'm going to make myself cry saying this. Middle school was so tough for me. Me too. And I felt like you were like such an awesome friend. And I did not reciprocate that as I should have. And I felt like a lot of times I was just striving to be somebody I was not. I don't remember it that way. So thank you for that, for being the friend that I didn't deserve. Here's the deal. I didn't. I don't remember it that way because I remember you being a good friend to me too. Like, I don't remember. Goodness gracious. (laughs) Middle school school was hard for me for a lot of different reasons. We'll talk about some of that in a little bit, but um, there are two people who stick out during that time and it's you and Miss Jennifer Laird Raider. And um, you two were a very constant for me through fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh into seventh grade. And so anything that you might remember that impacts you, that you have regrets about, please don't, because I don't hold on to that. I don't remember that. Oh, that, that makes me feel better. I just, you know, you look back on your life and you're like, gosh, middle schoolers are such jerks. And I was one of those <laughs> sometimes, you know, we take advantage of the people in our lives that should, we shouldn't have. Um, so anyway, there were, there were other people who made my life 
hell. And that probably overshadowed any kind of pettiness that maybe we encountered. So don't, don't sweat that stuff. Please. <laughs> okay. I was not no. expecting to get all emotional right here at the beginning. Jeez. I only have love for you. So I only have love and good awesome. memories with, for you. So no, no hurries. No worries. Open this up with a therapy session. <laughs> um. Okay, so we'll just get into it. Um, I know that you are a twin mm-hmm. and that um, he was born with health issues. We didn't talk about it because, like I said, middle school, you don't dive deep into each other's lives. <laughs> it's, you know, maybe high, maybe middle schoolers do now, but I don't feel like we, you know, as middle schoolers could really have that kind of mature relationship to talk about the tough stuff. So I didn't really know much about him, but I know you had mentioned him a little bit. So can you go back and tell me about about him and just that story with him? How long was he in your life? Yeah, Zachary and I were born premature and both of us born with significant health issues. His were greater than mine. The doctors, you know, advised my mom to like just leave us at the hospital because there was no hope. And my mom was oh a woman gosh. of faith. And just said, you know what? I just, I, I just believe my God is bigger than that. And Zachary lived for three and a half years. And there were times where he was in the home, and then there was a time, there was times when he was in a convalescent home, which is called Holy Angels. It's still there in Louisiana, but he has what I now have come to know as cerebral palsy. I do not believe in 1980, 1983, there was a, a, a name for that. Um, he also had hydrocephalus, which is like fluid buildup on the brain. And he was blind also in one of his eyes. So my brother was never a functioning toddler. I was walking and talking early and he lied around like an infant. And so our relationship was nonverbal. It was, uh, it was a, in a, a spiritual relationship. I remember him. People say you can't remember that early. I I call bull on that. I do remember my brother, not just pictures of him. I remember the way he smelled. I remember the way his voice sounded, even though he wasn't verbal. I could remember his, um, the, his vocalizations. And we were affectionately referred to as peanut butter and jelly. We were like two, like at the convalescent home when we would visit, when my mom would take me to visit him. And I actually have two peanut butter and jelly rag dolls that I've kept all these years that were ours. Mine is worn and faded and his is brand new because he couldn't play, but I would play with him. And um, he died when I was three, when we were three and a half. So in July prior to my fourth birthday, and I don't remember getting the news that my brother died, but I remember the day going to the funeral home and saying goodbye to him one last time. So how did his death affect you as a three-year-old? Like, do you remember, other than going to the funeral home, do you remember those feelings? Yeah, I, I, I definitely remember that. I always remember, felt as if like a part of me died with him. Like I, there, there was something very visceral in the, in the way that feels when you have somebody tied to you on a very genetic level and a spiritual level that's completely ripped from apart in a, in a place that's developmentally impossible to understand. And so um, I remember being incredibly sad. And over the years, even today, it's my brother has been dead for 40 or 39 years. No, 39 years in July. This July was 39 years. 
And even still, it will get to be like the days leading up to his anniversary of his death. And I will get this pit in my stomach and I will either look it up and like, eh, it's got to be close or somebody will reach out to me and be like, just let it let, reach thinking about you today. And I know, I know it in my soul on the anniversary of his death and um, all the years growing up, I remember just feeling that even as a small child and not understanding. There was many year, many times over the years for a lot of different reasons, not understanding why it, my brother died and I did not, which is a very sad thought. Like I thought I should have been the one that died, um, why he couldn't stay with me, why we couldn't have both gone. And so that's a, that's a huge impact. And being a family of faith, like grew up in the church, you know, being Southern Bible Belt churchgoers, I was always told like, you know, he's in heaven with Jesus and God needed him. And like all these platitudes people give people who are grieving that are not helpful because then I felt like, well, why did Jesus need him? I need him. And that, that was really hard for me as a small child to really understand. So you said that the um, hospital told your mom that she should leave both of you. What health problems did you have? So um, I had underdeveloped lungs. So because we were premature, both only two pounds at birth, and I, my lungs, most premature babies' lungs are underdeveloped. So I had underdeveloped lungs and could not breathe on my own for a while. And um, I also have have my the my the way my legs grew because I was premature. They were had not fully developed for toes to point straight ahead. So my toes naturally point outward. Growing up, there's always a problem for me. I've trained myself now to walk with toes ahead. But my legs were deformed. I mean, there was some deformity, and the doctors begged my mom, even as a when I was younger, to like let them rebreak them and do surgery. But she was so afraid of like the risk factors for that, so we never did that. But mostly the lung issues, and but being t- so tiny in 1980, where they don't really have a lot of interventions, um, there just wasn't a whole lot of hope for babies our size who were as premature as we were. Now, for Zachary, I know that. With that condition, the fluid on the brain that they oftentimes now will do like a shunt or something mm-hmm. like that. Was that an, an option back then or it was just, it wasn't going to work? I honestly don't remember. It seems as if he may have had a shunt placed at some point, but it was maybe ineffective. I honestly cannot remember it. It's not a discussion we re- I've really had with my mom, but there's a chance that may not have been effective. So there were the risk outweighed the effect efficacy of it. And so possibility too is why that didn't happen. I know that you grew up with a single mom for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that? You you didn't know who your dad was growing up. Right. How is that not having a father figure in your life or, or not having, you know, did you always feel like something was missing, not knowing where the other half of you you know, where that came from or who, you know, who you were. Did it, did it make you question your identity? Yeah, absolutely. There was always a part of me, um, because I lost my twin brother, I felt the, my own, the only person who was like truly mine was gone and not knowing my dad also created a whole sense of like detachment from self. And as a backstory, my mom was married and I had a father whose name I carried until I got married. He adopted me he actually adopted my twin brother too before his passing. And he was in my life until I was until the summer before seventh grade. 
and um, he was abusive. He not only did not have my quote unquote real dad, this other man who was supposed to be a father to me was incredibly, he was an evil person. And so there was so many things, so much questioning why I didn't deserve a dad, why I didn't, you know, why, what did I do wrong to not have someone in my life to love me, to care for me? How did that affect middle school, high school, Tiffany? I know mm-hmm. that study after study after study shows that girls not having father figures or strong father figures or having close relationships with their fathers can really affect their relationships with with guys, with, with others growing up or even who they choose as a spouse. Um, I'm like so adamant with my husband, you know, from day one that you've got to do stuff with her. You've got to bond with her, uh, with Juliet. You know, I don't want her to go looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, you hear that song. So how did that affect you? Well, we know about attachment styles as that starts developing at birth from the attachments we have with our parents of origin. And so I did not have a parent of origin in lieu of a father. And so of course my attachment issues were skewed. I think that, well, first of all, I experienced depression before there was a word for that in seventh grade that was on the tail end of um, sexual abuse by the man i just mentioned. Seventh grade was already really hard being, you know, whatever, 13 years old and awkward and it's all, all these things. And then I had depression. And I remember very specifically in the seventh grade, that was probably the first time that I thought about committing suicide. Um, I did not know then how to do that. I did not know what to do. I remember there's a good friend of ours. I don't know if she would remember this, who actually was at my house one day and I was having just a really dark day and I was going to take a bunch of pills and she like knocked them out of my hands, like made a huge mess on the floor and told on me. And, and then went to school and told one of our junior high guidance counselor. And that was the first time the, this, the new, the news of my abuse came out, but nothing was ever done for that for a variety of reasons. Things are not as they are now, um, as far as mandatory reporting, but that was my first experience with depression. I did not have a word, a name for it. I got counseling and I would say that off and on over the years, that was a, that was helpful. But in answering your question, you know, I did seek out attention from boys, basically any boy that would show me attention, but also in a, an incredibly palpable way, I was terrified of men. And so it was just this really um, difficult conflict for me where I, I, I had a boyfriend or had boyfriends off and on starting in junior high. I mean, let's be honest, Chad Bradley was my boyfriend <laughs> since preschool, but then Chad Bradley <laughs> and I moved along in about fifth, fifth or sixth grade. But um, in junior high, you know, real boyfriends who like wanted to kiss and hold hands, that terrified me, absolutely terrified me. I would be like a ball of stress inside. And so th- that was a huge conflict in learning how to trust people and learning how to not put myself in positions in which I would be um, vulnerable you know, you're talking about that happening in seventh grade, and I don't remember that at all. I don't know how I how I missed that. I, I had to have known that. I don't know. Um, my my mom kept it quiet for the most part. It wasn't public knowledge. People who knew were like our close circle. But many of my close friends, I mean, my the friend that I was re- referencing was Cindy Bearden. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she, I don't even, I say she, she might not remember. She may not. It wasn't public knowledge. It wasn't something we talked about, you know, growing up in the eighties and then the early nineties, there were just certain things in the South you didn't talk about. And childhood abuse was the one of them. You know, any, we, I grew up at least where things that happen in your home, you don't talk about outside the home. Yep. Growing up, knowing that you didn't know who your father was. Yeah. Did you ever dream about finding him or think one day I'm going to find him? All the time. And you had asked about being raised by a single mom and not having a father figure. My mom, you know, we were in church all the time. So there were men in my life who taught me things. Connie and Becky Harris's dad, Joe, is the one who taught me how to ride a bicycle. And my now stepdad taught me how to drive a car. So there are men who filled in the filled in those gaps for me in in really healthy ways that I don't know, gave me some hope, but, um, (laughs) dreaming who my dad was, I mean, it was constant. I would have like be in a, be in church and like a new person would walk in on church and be like, could that be him? Um, I would speculate. I would draw conclusions. Like there was kids in school who I would be like, we kind of have similar facial features. Maybe they're my sibling. Maybe they're my cousin. And so I would like fantasize about things like that. And there is a movie I wish I could remember. And I watched it in college. Um, but in this movie, it's a very much about a, it's a meta young man who never knew his father. And he shares about how he all, he would sit at this ice corner ice cream shop and daydream that his father would walk in and buy him an ice cream cone and that movie just wrecked me because I'm like, I know exactly what that was like because I did p- just imagine somebody walking up and saying, I'm yours, you're mine, and we live happily ever after. And uh, that was incredible. Oh, man. Richard Gere, I fantasize that Richard Gere was my father. Um, <laughs> Kenny, Kenny Rogers, I fantasize that Kenny Rogers was my dad growing up. And so there was people who I was like, it could be him. I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't have, I, did, I had no information about who my father was. And um, my mom did that as a way to protect me for what, for her own reasons. And I don't fault her for that. My mom did the best that she could for what she had, the information she had. There was a lot of shame, I believe, involved with why she didn't share that information with me. But um, yeah, there is so much um, speculation, but also a lot of heartache. I will say that there was just a certain, certain level of emptiness, losing my brother and not having my dad just left behind an emptiness that I probably would not have been able to verbalize at seven, 12, 21 years old. As a therapist, I recognize it now in doing other work with people and in my own, my own um, personal therapy work. What prompted you to start searching for your dad? This was just a few, few years ago, right? Yeah. I was in the middle of graduate school, um, getting my licensed mental health degree, a master's degree, and we were doing lifespan. So we were talking about our life history and we were doing genograms. Genograms are um, therapeutic charts essentially of your family of origin. And mine was grossly one-sided. All I had was my mother's side of the family. And I was just, that was unacceptable to me. And so I, um, actually my professor made, um, some interactions about like not knowing your family of origin and, and we had a coupon code 
because of grad school for Ancestry DNA. And I was like, well, what the heck? Let's try this. And so, yeah, I sent off the spit and it was the longest six weeks of my life probably. Did you tell your mom you were doing it? No, I couldn't tell her. First of all, I told my husband, my then husband, um, John, who was very supportive in that endeavor. I said, this is, this could kill my mom. Like this could break her heart. But I knew that I didn't want to upset her unnecessarily. Cause what if it came back and I found nothing and we were no worse for the wear, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's no reason to upset her. And so I just was like, I'm just going to not t- say anything for now. So I waited that six weeks, kept it a secret. And then what did you find? I got the the results on a Wednesday night. I was at church and I got the results and I like sped home to get on my computer because I was looking at them on my phone and found nothing significant. I did not know how to interpret these test results. I was so confused. Nothing stuck out to me. I could ease, I was able to easily pick out my mom's cousins who I'm, our family has been close to. I know I've known my whole life. They were, they showed up. And so I was like, okay, I can pick out. And I was able to recognize anybody that shared a match with that lady, cousin of my mom's was obviously mom's relative. So I could, I could easily differentiate who was not my dad's side of the family, but I could not make sense of who could have been. And none of the names were making sense or ringing a bell to me. And so I actually reached out. I was on a Facebook group at that time for Ancestry DNA people um, called Search Angels, and they um, help you find people or help you make sense or interpret your test results. And so I'd reached out. A lady said, I would love to help you do this. So Wednesday I got my results. I reached out to her on a Friday, and by Saturday or by Sunday, I knew who my father was (laughs) because we found one one match who was very strong was my strongest match was a man named with the last name Allen did not make any sense to me did not know who this person was but she was able to this this wonderful search angel was able to differentiate she's like this is what these numbers mean he's probably either he could be your like uncle but maybe farther out so she she knew he was somebody close so that was huge. I messaged this gentleman and he said, can you call me? So I called him and I just said, this is who I am. This is where I grew up. This is when I was born. This is what Ancestry DNA is telling me. So I just gave him my very basic information. He said, well, okay, I have with me, I, my name is David. I have with me my niece, Raina, and we think that one of Raina's two brothers is your father. And they were like, so tell us again when you're born. And I went over that again. And I, and so they were like, well, it can't be the, this brother because he was incarcerated at the time in Louisiana penitentiary. <laughs> and she said, so it can only be this other person. And I was like, well, do you guys know my mom? No, we do not. And I was like, okay, this is a huge risk. They were like, that's the only person that could be. This man, David, would, have, would be my great uncle, my grandfather's brother. Raina would be my step aunt if the information they were giving me was correct. And so they were like, let us do some digging. We'll get back to you. So that was like probably Saturday. On Sunday, they call me again and we have a big, another big chat and um, they're telling me things about the family and just different things. I sent them a ton of pictures of myself and they started sending pictures back. And for the first time in my life, I knew who I looked like. I knew these people were my people because I look exactly like my aunts. And um, so that was mind blowing. Oh, wow. Mind blowing. Mm-hmm. 
So they gave me a number. They said, this is the last known number of this gentleman. And I was like, okay. And they were like, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. So I had everything I needed. I had the information. I had the phone number. I had the name. And I was really scared. Like, this is this is that walking around the, the corner from the ice cream shop moment for me. And I, I couldn't take the step. So I called my mom that Sunday night and I said, I believe that I found my dad. And I told her everything I just told you about grad school, about ancestry DNA, about I've been waiting six weeks and about the test results. And I asked her, do you know this man? And she said, no. And I said, well, that's his nickname. Do you know this birth name? But, uh, uh, and she said, that doesn't ring a bell to me. And I said, well, mom, the ancestors and genetics don't lie. DNA doesn't lie. And, and she said, it doesn't ring a bell. And I said, well, I'm sorry if this is hurtful for you, but it really mean a lot to me if you could just give me some sort of confirmation because I plan on calling him. And so she asked me to talk her through it again. And I started like saying names. And so she was like, okay, my mom, then it rang a bell that she had dated this man, but she did not think that it would have been possible for him to have parented me, fathered me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But she said, it was a long time ago. I don't, I have nothing for you, essentially. So she wasn't really upset with me. She just basically was like, what do you hope to gain here? And I just said, I just want to know. I just need to know. And so she said, what if he doesn't want anything to do with you? And I said, at least I'll still know, you know? And so anyway, so on Monday at work, I had a break in clients. I was a substance abuse counselor at the time. And I called that number and nobody answered. And I just left a voicemail and I said, hi, my name is Tiffany Heff and I need to talk to you. And hearing my dad's side of it now, I know that he listened to that voicemail and he thought that I was a doctor's office. He'd been waiting for some doc- some results from a doctor's office, but he thought it was really strange that I didn't like name the facility I was with. So he was like, well, I'm just going to call her back. And so he calls me back and I, he was like, is this Tiffany? And I was like, this is Tiffany. And he was like, this is I'm going to say my dad's name now because I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud to be his daughter. Um, His name is Bo Allen. And um, he said, this is Bo Allen. He said, this is Bo. And my dad has a real country, southern, north Louisiana accent. And I said, my name is Tiffany. I was born November 2nd, 1980. I believe that you're my father. And he said, well, hold on a minute now. And his (laughs) southern accent, he said, who's your mama? And I told him Stacy, and I told him her main name, what it would have been at the time, which was a different name, and kind of gave him. And he said, "Well, ain't this the coolest conversation I ever had?" I've. He's like, "I'm your dad." Like he knew. So what I know now is that my dad suspected he'd heard that this girl had had a, twins, and he was mutually friends with my aunt, my mom's sister. They had some mutual friends and he had asked around and he was like, well, those babies, are they mine? People are like, no, they can't be. And so he, he let it go. But the crazy things is we grew up in Spring Hill. He had been living in Shangaloo for most of my life. And for people who aren't from that area listening, that's only 20 minutes down the road, if that. <laughs> Literally. He, the church I grew up in, he would have to drive by every single day of his whole life going to work because that's that road going out to Shangalu. 
he said, well, I got to talk to your, I got to talk to my wife. And so he called, he says, can I call you tomorrow? Can I call you later tonight or tomorrow? And I was absolutely, I get a text message from my sister, Lindsay later that day and says, my dad told, or maybe it's my timeline's fuzzy. She, she messaged me later to reach out and just say, like, I accept you. Like, I'm so excited to have another sister, all of these things. And um, my stepmom never missed a beat. Like, she was like, you know, we always thought that maybe you were. And, you know, and um, right away, my dad went and visited my brother's grave. And, like, they go there often to put flowers out and for my dad just to pay his respects for the son he never got to meet. Um, since then, my sister Amanda was a little bit slower cu- coming along with it because she is a, a brilliant mind and very cerebral, and she needed to wrap her mind around this in her own way. But at Thanksgiving that same year, so this was in October, I would say around in October, and, and at Thanksgiving, she called me to wish me happy Thanksgiving, and she and I hit it off. And actually, she and I are most similar to me and than me and all my sisters, and we are very very close. I talk to her probably every day dad and stepmom never missed a beat and neither did the whole whole extended family. I have an aunt, um, Shay in um, Georgia who I've never met, but she messages me regularly, sends me cards often, and I look exactly like her. I know exactly what I'm going to look like when I'm 60 <laughs> um, because I look identical to my aunt Shay, um, which is pretty cool. Um, my other half aunts and uncles also, um, it, it just it's just pretty cool how it all kind of just filled in all those pieces, missing pieces of my life. So when did you meet him in person? Christmas that same year. So in this was pre-COVID, right? Yeah, pre-COVID um, 2019, the year I turned 39. Um, we had we drove, my ex-husband and I, we were still married then, with our children, drove down to Louisiana and um, met him and my stepmom and my sisters. And one of my sisters, the other sister was out of town. And it was like a very emotional moment for he and I, my dad and I just stood out in his driveway holding each other. He's an incredibly tall man. And he just like absorbed me and just wept. And just like, it felt like just all these parts to my life came together in that moment. The crazy thing is that my baby, my youngest boy, so I have four children, my youngest boy, Jabez, He's my only natural born son, and we can t- we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But Jabez does not look at all like my ex husband's family, and I remember my my ex husband said one time, like it's hard to know who he looks like. I don't recognize this child, and he has really strong genetics. His family, my daughter, looks just like them, and so it was really bizarre. But when he met my dad, it it was like. Oh, that's who he looks like. My son looks like an Allen. He is tall and slender, just like my dad. He looks exactly like my dad in the face. Same exact eye spacing. I mean, he he looks like he... We compare pictures of my dad when he was a child to my son, and it's just uncanny how much they look alike. So, yeah, that was incredibly incredible moment. And the fact that he, I got everything that I wanted, I wanted to know, plus more. My dad is incredibly supportive of me and so loving and kind and regrets a lot that he couldn't be there for me. But I don't, again, hold that against anyone, not my mother, not my father. It's that to me, there's no point in holding on to any kind of resentments for that. So um, I have my family now and I'm glad that I didn't wait too long. I love that story. And it's like all these little puzzle pieces that just kind of fell into place with just realizing who you look like, who your son looks like. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just crazy to think that 
you know, you've raised your son and all along he looked just like your dad and you didn't even realize it till, you know, Jabez, when Jabez was born, it, it, for the first time, it felt like a part of me was here because I lost my twin brother and didn't have my dad. And Jabez was biologically mine, like biologically related to me. And part, I always wonder, like, did he look like Zachary? Like if Zachary was healthy, would he look like Jabez? They had that piece come together and know like, well, they look like dad. That was incredibly powerful. I believe everything works out for a reason. And um, to me, there's just so many miracles. As as many hardship as I faced, struggles and difficulties, I have faced as many miracles. Oh, I love that. Last question about your dad. It sounds like I know the answer to this already, but did he live up to your expectations of what you always hoped your father would be like? Um, you know, as at, at his character, yes. Um, I did not have any anticipations about who, what he would do for a living, or what lifestyle he would leave, lead, or anything, any of those things, because I didn't have any frame of reference. But I, I had hoped that he would be good, and kind, and generous, and funny, and he's all of those things. And he's good, and kind, and generous, and funny. And my dad has his own set of stories and miracles, and he loves his family. And yes, he, he does. He does meet all of those expectations, whatever they may have been. Oh, so you got your ice cream story after all. I did. Yep. I don't know that if I had asked for my dad, if I had been able to paint that picture, if I would have been, if I would have been as content as I am with who he is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Crazy story, Melissa. My second grade homeroom teacher, Miss Denman, is my aunt, is my great aunt. Oh. <laughs> and I never I never knew. And she never knew either. And I, I think about that a lot. Like that that lives rent free in my mind. I sat in second grade all those years. First grade, excuse me, first grade. She was like my first grade teacher, Mrs. Miss somebody else was my second grade. First grade teacher at Browning, Miss Den, Mrs. Denman's husband was my grandfather's brother. I think we were in that same class. I think she was my first grade teacher also. Actually, not my grandfather, my grandmother's brother. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. I know. <laughs> and that's what it's like being living, growing up in a small town. Right. Yeah. There's probably, yeah, lots of family all around that you just didn't realize. Our ninth grade math teacher, Miss Burton, did her DNA testing um, much later in life. And we are also related. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. I know. Um, I'm not from there, so I'm not related to any of the people there. (laughs) Well, I didn't think I was related to anybody either. We were implants. (laughs) Yeah. Going back, we kind of fast forwarded a little bit to talk about your dad, but going back, you go off to college and meet your ex-husband Mm-hmm. And you guys get married mm-hmm. and then you start trying to plan a family. So can you take me back to that time to the emotional journey when you realized you had infertility problems? Yeah, I'll go back a little bit further. Um, in I knew all along in high school I had female issues. It was very obvious at a very early age. And when I was 19 pre-marriage, I had some serious female issues and had 
saw a doctor and was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it was so severe, even at 19 years old, that the doctor then said, it will be highly unlikely if you ever conceive. So I knew that going into marriage. And so, but I was a person of faith and I just believed that I would be a mom. I felt like that was really promised to me through a lot of just some different confirmations um, over the years. Like I just knew I was supposed to be a mom and I knew I would be a mom. And so John and I had been married two years when I kind of pushed heavily for us to um, start trying to conceive. I was like, if this is going to be problematic for me, we probably should start early. And immediately was working with a reproductive endocrinologist because I had that pre that pre-diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. And um, this doctor reiterated what my original doctor had said, like it's going to be highly unlikely for you to ever conceive. So that was in 2004. And then by 2006, we'd been married four years at that point. And I had all, I had undergone, I'm sorry, by 2007, I'd undergone 10 rounds of Clomid, four rounds of injectables. I had, I had exhausted all of my personal resources, insurance caps, and my father-in-law had actually also invested some money in trying to help us financially afford medication, fertility drugs, Etc. IUI intrauterine insemination was the plan with the injectables, but I rejected the rege- injectables. My body did not respond to those at all. Could not simulate. I could not get my ovaries to stimulate enough to ovulate. And so they said, IUI is going to be a waste of a lot of money because we can't even get you to ovulate to do that. And so, and we knew IVF would be the next round, but IVF is very expensive. We were young newlyweds who were in pastoral ministry. And so it was not financially feasible. And so it broke my heart. It destroyed my faith that I had to make a decision to stop trying to conceive. When I started trying to get pregnant with Juliet, I was also diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it took us a year and a half to conceive. And I only was able to conceive because they paired Clomin with metformin. Did they try that with you? Yes. I had all, all 10 rounds of Clomid were metformin, were on metformin as well. Um, And in fact, Clomid is not supposed to be used that many rounds. Yeah. Um, I did find (laughs) out later, like they, um, I, I changed doctors. I moved from North Dakota to Missouri and then in Missouri changed doctors again. And that doctor could not believe my records and how much Clomid I had been using. I mean, they, not only did they keep letting me repeat it, but they kept jacking up the dosing. Which is not helping the situation if you're not ovulating. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so he's the one who just said no more Clomid, no more metformin. We're going to go a different route. And that's when I started the IUI and there were some other, um, cocktail of medications that I tried at that point. At, at what point did you start looking into fostering? Adoption's always been, was always a part of mine and my ex-husband's plan. Um, we thought we might adopt internationally, but when we were living in Missouri, we became friends with some people who were um, in, like involved in the Missouri foster care system. And so we were like, you know, maybe 
a distraction would be nice. We have this home. We were living at home. We were single. We were just a couple with no, no kids. And we could foster some kids for a while until we either decide to adopt or figure out that route. And so we did the foster parenting classes. And then on the tail end of that, we also did foster adopt classes. And we were basic, we were told like, we'll get you foster care, foster kids, but there's no way you're ever going to adopt a baby from the foster care system who isn't a sick attached to a bunch of siblings and free for adoption. It just is impossible. And so we were like, okay. (laughs) And we just started taking in foster care, foster kids. Our first set were a set of sibling girls. And then we had like a, and they, they left us and they, we got a like a 12 year old girl. And so we started getting foster kids. I guess I'm kind of jumping around here because I feel like I kind of glazed over the whole emotional uh, part of realizing that you're not going to have children naturally. Did yeah. you at that time, like when the doctor said, this is just not going to happen, were you like, okay, this really isn't going to happen? Or were you still like, no, I'm not giving up. Maybe I'll give up for a little bit, but I'm not giving up hope. The doctor, you know, he, he told, we, we got the, so we got a phone call, um, from the doctor who said, you just aren't responding at all to these injections. We need to schedule you for an IVF consultation. And I told him on the phone, I said, there's no way I can afford that. My body cannot endure that. And emotionally, I am not ready for, I, I emotionally am exhausted from this. My marriage was suffering. I mean, when you have marital relations, on a schedule to try to conceive. It is not romantic. It is not healthy. And there was just so many parts to that. And so I called it off. I made that decision and it was heart wrenching, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And something about me is that anytime I set my mind on anything, I just like fully focus that. And so I just shifted. I was like, well, if I can't be a mom to a natural born child, I'm going to shift my focus to foster parenting and be the best foster mom that I can be to any kid that comes to me. Being a mom is the goal. Pregnancy not required is kind of what I started saying to people. But I'll be honest, there were so many times where I would weep in church, like praying. I remember Christmas of 2000 and seven was the hardest Christmas I ever had. I remember putting up my Christmas tree, Christmas decorations, listening to Christmas music and just having a breakdown and like on my knees, like praying, like you spoke Christ into Mary's womb with the word. And all I'm asking is some for medical science miracle here and just a not understanding. And um, there was a song at the time. It's a very popular praise and worship song, contemporary praise and worship song that says, I believe you're my healer. And my husband and I would just play that over and over and over again and like speak it over me and pray and pray and pray over that. And it just wasn't happening. And we even had like a prophet in church, like say like God's promising to heal you and it wasn't happening. And my faith was shaken. My husband had greater faith than I did. I probably, um, but it just felt like maybe I just didn't hear from God. Maybe all these promises of being able to conceive were just not, I just missed it. And okay, now let's just move along. Let's just, just do this next, next right thing. And that was foster parenting. Um, I read all the books. I did all the Bible studies. I, one thing I never did though, was harden my heart, you know, and, um, I just knew that I couldn't let myself go there again. We talked about depression earlier. It was probably another dark time of my life when we were going through infertility treatments. 
and here's the deal. People talk about month after month, I was disappointed. Well, month after month, I was still just like living my life. My period wouldn't come and it would be like, nothing else is happening. It was like, I can't even get that let down. Like right. it was so, so, so frustrating with polycystic ovarian syndrome, but, um, I just needed just like focus my attention on just this next thing, which was the foster parenting. You know, with fostering that, it sounds like you have a lot of kids come and go. Mm-hmm. Did you have to kind of prep yourself? Like I cannot get attached to these kids. Like, were you, were you trying, like, where did you want to, were you like, I can't have my own, I'm just going to bond with the, with these kids. And then that made it harder for them to leave. Or did, were you like real unemotional about it? <laughs> I think it would be hard for me. I'm nothing if not a realist. And I was very realistic in that the state's goal is always reunification. And so I knew that. And so I changed my mindset instead of fostering kids, I was fostering families, holding space for children, loving them the best way I could as a foster parent while their parents got their poop in a group and got (laughs) them back. Like that was the goal. And so when I changed my focus from being a foster mom to fostering families, I, it helped me form a detachment that was healthy, but also able happily allow children to go home with their parents, which is where they should be. Right. Yeah. I mean, studies show, I know now studies show that children who are raised by families of origin are most healthy. And so if it's a healthy home life, and so that was kind of our mindset. And so, and because we'd always had our back of our mind, like the state was really good about saying like, these kids are for fostering. It's going to be short term, or these kids are going to be fostering. It might be a little bit longer term. They're going to still have rights or visits with their parents or parents still have rights. And so that helps kind of buffer the, the expectation that they're going to stay forever. When did that turn into an adoption for you? So at that point, um, John and I had fostered the two little girls. We had a a 12-year-old girl that had been moved. And we had gone through a really difficult time in our life because my ex-husband had lost his job. We had moved towns and we were just kind of getting settled in. At that point, he was working two jobs to replace the one he lost. And um, we were kind of just getting settled in. I worked for the state of Missouri at that time. And, um, I got a call from one of my coworkers, a DHS worker. I did not work for that department. I just lady I knew in the office just said, Hey, I've got a two day old baby here at the hospital that needs a home. Can you take him? And I was like, yep, you could bring him over as soon as possible. And at this time I had nothing for an infant. Um, I did not have a crib. I did not have anything to my name for an infant, because at that point we'd been told you're never going to get an infant. Number two, all the kids we'd had up at that point were older. And then I called my husband and I said, Hey, they're going to bring a two day old baby from the hospital. I hope that's okay. And he was like, well, did you say yes? And I'm like, yep, I did. And so they brought this baby home in the car seat wearing an ER sleeper and he was sleeping and she just sets the carrier down on my living room floor. And I take a step back and I'm looking at him and she said, you can hold him. And I was like, Oh God, I would love to hold him. So I pick him up out of his car, out of his car seat and I just hold him. And she's like, we don't know what's happening. We're going to court tomorrow for adjudication, which adjudication is basically the plan where the courts decide is this child, does the state have grounds to keep this child in foster care? So long story short, adjudication came and went and the child was left in foster care with us. So two day old baby boy placed in our home. With no advance notice. (laughs) 
No advance notice. He was a foster child. He was still having visits with his biological parents at two days old and he was going to daycare. I still worked full time. I didn't get a maternity leave. I didn't get anything else when he was four months old. So when that baby was four months old, we got another call um, from our adoption case manager. So this is a different phone call. The foster placements are usually like from a foster placement worker. But when you get a phone call from your adoption worker, that's a, that has a different feel. And she said, hey, check your email. I just sent over the profile for a seven-month-old baby boy who is free for adoption. I think he'd be great for your family or I think your family would be great for him. I pulled up my email at work and my hand flew to my mouth and I said out loud, that's my son. I knew in my gut that that baby was supposed to be mine. And I sent over immediately our intent, our um, staffing um, request. So at that time in the state of Missouri, you have to have a staffing. That means they have interviews, a big team of a panel of individuals interview potential parents for adopted children, for children to be adopted in this way. John and I got the call and said, we would love to staff you guys, but we want you to know that his current foster family is also going to staff him. And that was heart wrenching to know because basically they don't want to disrupt children more than often. Seven months old, he'd been with this family since birth. That didn't look great for us. And so, but they were older. Dad was, the foster father was six, over 60, retired. Foster mom was in her late fifties. They were grandparent age and not parent age. And so they just said, well, the state has to make the decision based on what's best on the child. And so we went to Joplin, Missouri and did the staffing. Now I am consider myself a very articulate person. I'm a professional, educated. My ex-husband was a pastor. And so he was also articulate. We do well in these kind of situations. This is our time to shine. We are public speakers by nature and we biffed it. He and I walked out of that staffing (laughs) and looked at each other and said, that didn't go very well, did it? And we were like, no, like we didn't, we were nervous. We don't know. Like we just weren't on our best. And so we, um, they just said, well, you'll hear from us either by five o'clock tonight or, yeah. And so five o'clock came and went and we didn't hear anything. We drove back home. It was like two hour drive home. We didn't hear anything. And I had just reconciled my mind that it wasn't meant to be that his foster parents were going to be adopting him. And that was okay. And I got a call the next day while I was at work again, um, from the adoption worker. And he was like, Hey, just want to let you know. And in my gut, like I let it sit in. He was about to tell me they chose somebody else. And he said, we did choose you. And I said, you did? Like D-I-D did? And he said, we did. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, you've just made me like the happiest person in the world. And so we set up from there, we set up all these things because you have to have like so many visits with the child before they can place the child in your home permanently. And so it was like going back and forth Joplin, Missouri to to see him. And after the second visit, I actually advocated. I said, he's seven months old. He doesn't know. don't make me take my, my son home again or take him back to his foster family again. And they were like, okay. (laughs) And so we brought him home seven months old. Mind you, we still have four month old infant in our home for foster care. And this was in October. Yeah. September, October time. And then we took in like four teenage girls. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Two of them were just for respite care and two of them were for foster placement. And then one of them left and then we were down to one. Were they helping you with the babies at least? 
Yeah, they loved holding them. That was about all the help they were. But um, that Christmas, that was in 2007. I, I miss, yeah, 2008. Christmas 2008, I have a nine-month-old at that point. Or no, six-month-old and a five-month-old. Anyway, six-month-old. And my timing's off. At Christmas that year, um, it was a happy Christmas, as you can imagine, two babies and all the family wanted to come see the babies. The first adopted child's parents voluntarily terminated their rights. And at that point, that means they say this child has to go back into the system because now they're a ward of the state. Now they have to go back in the system as like free for adoption. So they have to do a staffing all over again. Well, we'd had him since birth. And so we were obviously a get, we had a preferential, but they, and so there's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucratic red tape, but long story short, in March of 2009, after the state had told us, you'll never get a child who's not attached to a sibling group. You'll never get a baby and you'll never get a baby that's well. We adopted two babies in March of 2009. Within two weeks of each other, we finalized adoptions, which is nothing short of a miracle because the state of Missouri requires 18 months waiting for adoptions. But we we waived the 18 months for our new baby because he was placed with us at birth, two days old. And so they waived that. And we waived, the state waived the other 18-month wait because that child was considered abandoned by the state because the biological parents had left the state and didn't respond to service mail. And so we, we adopted by then Benjamin, that's our oldest son, was a month, a, a year and a month old. And Devin was nine months old. And those are our now 15-year-old sons. And nothing short of a miracle that during that time, the, the pain and the suffering of infertility became very clear to me that this was why for such a time as this, you know, that time that just sticks out to me. Like, had I conceived, I would not have pursued foster care. Had I not perceived foster care, I would not have been ready for two babies to come to me at the time that they needed to be because they were all meant, they all, their timing was all made up already. And so I knew, and I was perfectly fine with that. I was like, okay, I accept that. I know, I know now I was supposed to be a mom and I was supposed to be on to these two babies. And, um, to me that, that, that made not to diminish my own feelings because my feelings are very real, but it was healing to me to be a mom to these boys. So you did go on to have two babies biologically. Yeah. Tell me about that. Set fast forward five years, Devin um, started praying, Dear Jesus, please put a baby in my mommy's tummy. And we thought he was adorable because he is adorable. And he would then started praying for a sister. During that time, John and I actually got separated. We were separated for six months. Our marriage was not healthy. There were some things um, that happened and we separated for six months and we got back together in November of 2012. And in April of 2013, I was working at a daycare and I'd been running a lot, getting really healthy, like just really concentrating on my physical health. I just wanted to be super fit for my children, for the boys. They were five and they were five years old and I just are almost yeah five years old. And I just want to be super healthy for them. And I remember telling my coworker, like, I am just dragging. And she's like, you're pregnant. And I'm like, no, that's hilarious because it's been at this point in time, if you want to do the math, he and I had been married for 12 or 10 years and never used contraception. I mean, we never protected against because I was infertile. And I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. 
Uh, he was out of town with the boys and in Des Moines with his parents. And I called him on the phone and I said, I just took a pregnancy test and I'm pregnant. He was like, no way. And I, yeah. And I sent him a picture and, um, we couldn't believe it. And the boys, of course, were like, well, duh, we've been praying. <laughs> like, You're like, well, Jesus answered our prayers. We did that, you know, and we were like, okay. And so we waited until Father's Day 2012, 2013, excuse me. John was a pastor, senior pastor. That's my ex-husband um, is a senior pastor. At that point, I was 12 weeks pregnant, 12 weeks. I was out of the first trimester. We were in the clear. And I had put together this beautiful slideshow about redemption and two people who fell in love and got married and had infertility and adopted two babies and had a separation and almost divorced. And now we're having a baby of redemption. Like that's what we thought. And everybody in our church was so happy for us. It was just so emotional. The whole world celebrated with us. People literally all over the world celebrated with us at the announcement of our pregnancy at 12 weeks. That was on Sunday. And on Tuesday, I went to the doctor for my regular follow-up and there was no heartbeat. Oh. I remember lying there watching my doctor frantically finding, trying to find the heartbeat on the ultrasound and there's nothing moving. And in my mind, I just thought it was a still shot, like pictures. And I said, well, can't like just do an ultrasound. And John was like, she's not moving. There's no heartbeat. And my doctor gave, gave me a moment and the Worst part, the most horrifying moment of my life at that point was my doctor leaving the room. I'm getting dressed. A lady next to me is having the ultrasound of her baby. And I could hear her baby's heart beating. And I had just been told my baby was dead. And I could hear her baby's heart beating. And my husband covered my ears with his hands and like buried me in his chest to protect me from that. And I remember just wailing and I couldn't understand like all these years of waiting, so much contentment. I did not even have it on my radar that we'd ever conceive. Why would I be given this opportunity only to have it snatched from me? I didn't understand that. And I remember just saying like, I don't understand. I don't understand. And I had to be, have a DNC the next morning. Um, we had to tell our little boys that the baby sister that they prayed for was gone. We had opted to do genetic testing. I knew in my heart she was a girl and I was right. Um, but we also found out that I had a blood clotting disorder and that's what killed her. And um, my doctor was incredibly gracious and wonderful and beautiful. He was just a loving man and he was so sympathetic, empathetic towards me. And he just said, we're not going to give up hope. And I said, that's not a thing for me anymore. Like I, I named my baby hope because I, I told my husband hope died for the first time in my life. I had hope that I'd be a mom. I conceived naturally and she died. We named her hope, hope Salome, which means hope and peace. That was in April, June. We lost her. And after DNC, they're like, don't even don't have intercourse for six or eight weeks, especially after my condition. And I remember like we were tracking it on a cal- uh, on a calendar and I had ran a 5k race. I, we were at his mom's house, like stayed in his mom's house in Des Moines. We were do what married people do. And I conceived again <laughs> immediately. I didn't know it obviously right away, but I remember getting that fear. And so this time we waited 16 weeks and until we got a big 
green light. Like everything was healthy. Things were good. Jabez's due date was the one year anniversary to the day we lost our baby Hope. Aww. He was born two weeks early on June 4th, but um, by emergency C-section, but he was, he really was a miracle. And I was like, this is it. Three boys. This is the way life is supposed to be. And I did not know that I could conceive while I was breastfeeding. And 13 (laughs) months later, Lydia was born. I'd tell people I was pregnant for uh, three Christmases in a row or uh, three, sorry, three Easter's in a row, like bam, bam, bam. I tell people who struggle with infertility, like I can't make rhyme or reason of it. I wouldn't attempt to. I just know losing weight is scientifically why probably I started jump started ovulation, having the baby that I lost, plus finding out I had the blood clotting disorder. They were able to intervene with that. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, they were able to provide intervention for that and save the baby's life. So we, I believe that I lost hope in order to save the other two. So what other advice would you give to women who who are struggling with infertility or dealing with a loss of a pregnancy? Infertility is not solved by relaxing. <laughs> it is not solved by um, just adopting and it'll happen. And if anyone ever tries to dismiss your feelings, um, I have words to say for that that aren't public appropriate, but your feelings are valid. And feel all of that. Like to me, I felt like there were so many times where I was just dev- my feelings were devalued. People were like, Oh, it'll happen when it's supposed to happen. And you know, just relax, just give it time. I had a woman tell me one time who had suffered, this has suffered year, many, 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 many miscarriages. She said, the Lord opens the womb and the Lord closes the womb. And that was the most hurtful thing that anyone had ever said to me. It, it, she was telling me that God did this to me. And I didn't believe that. I couldn't accept that. And so my advice would be to just let yourself feel all of that. Just feel it all. The grief, the loss. It is an actual form of grief being infertile. And um, in miscarriage, obviously, is the loss of your your baby, a loss of part of you. And so to feel all that is valid. So that, that would be my biggest piece of advice, I think. I know that when in any time grief is involved, if it's a, a miscarriage or, you know, somebody who's lost uh, their grandfather or, you know, a, a range of ages of, of loss in the grief that goes along with that, a lot of us don't know what to say. And we just resort to saying stupid stuff that comes out of our mouths without thinking. What is appropriate to say to somebody who has lost a baby? I think saying, I don't know what to say is appropriate. I don't know what to say. I'm here for you. I don't know what to say, but I love you. I think it's valid to own that. I think we try to explain things. We try to give reason. We try to have the right things to say. And a lot of times we do more harm than good. And and the reality of it is, what can you say? There's nothing to be said that that takes away that pain. And so to say that, to own that, nothing I can say is going to make this better. One of the most powerful things that happened to me after my miscarriage was my best friend, Annie came to my house with Mexican food and chocolate and she sat on my couch. She didn't say anything. We just ate. She didn't have to say anything. To me, that said more, that was more powerful message to me than any words anybody could have ever given me after that loss. And that's enough. You had called your marriage unhealthy. 
Yeah. How long were you guys married for? And was it always unhealthy? 18 years. I would say, yeah, there was a lot. I was unhealed from childhood trauma. Um, I went into a, a marriage wounded. We weren't prepared for marriage. We were very young. I think about it now. I'm like, who lets 21 year old kids get married? I don't know. I was 19 when I got married and I say the same thing. <laughs> 21 years old. I was getting married and um, we were in Bible college. So there was a lot of pressure to do just that. So pastors weren't going out in pastoral ministry single. John and I dated for two years and I thought I knew him. He thought he knew me. And turns out we knew versions of each other. There were good, good times. I mean, when I tell these stories about those boys being adopted and our babies being conceived, beautiful, happy memories, but they're still spattered with a lot of unhealthy things. Things did not start going really poorly until after we probably started trying to conceive. We'd probably been married three or four years at that point when things started being very obviously unhealthy, toxic is the word. I I hate that word because it's a buzzword, but coming from an abusive childhood, things seem normal. Toxic behavior seemed normal because that's all I knew. And then when I started, my eyes started being open to how, just how unhealthy things were, you know, it was really bad. And like I said, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't always bad, but there was a lot of bad always, or there was some bad always, if that makes sense. You said before you got pregnant, you had split up for a little bit. Mm -hmm. After that point, were you completely reconciled and there weren't weren't any more split ups until you decided to get divorced? So we were separated for six months. And when we reconciled, we were committed to staying married. Um, We were married another eight years at that point. And I genuinely did not intend to ever divorce I grew up in a family of a lot of generations of multiple divorces. I did not want to be another one of those statistics. I We were pastoral ministers, so that was not heard of and not, I mean, the church just does not talk about, just does not a good do a good job about talking about divorce. There's a lot of toxic messages about the grounds for divorce. And so that was, that kept me staying for a long time. And then after COVID, during COVID, things went terribly wrong. And I will say that my ex-husband is a good father. He and I are much better co-parents than we were ever husband and wife. I would say that to him right now. He's he's my friend at best right now. But in 2020, during COVID, during while we we're all on COVID restrictions, church is online. There was a lot of stuff going on. And... I had asked for a separation and he refused to give me a separation. He said something to me and I won't share it here because I feel like it's, it's private for me, but it was that moment I knew like in my mind, we're done. We don't come back from this. And so unbeknownst to him, I started the process of, I consulted with an attorney. I started socking some money away, changed bank accounts. So like my direct deposits were being filtered and started doing some due diligence. Backstory, I worked as a domestic violence advocate for a year, for a few years or for a year, a few years prior, and I knew how to safety plan. And so I started doing that for myself and I wanted to get through the holidays that year and wanted to give my kids a good Thanksgiving and Christmas. And the first day my kids went back to school after Christmas vacation, 
2021, my attorney served him divorce papers. He was forced out. It was horrible. For two weeks, my kids could not see their dad. And that was really, that's a big regret I have. It was just a lot. He, he and I couldn't speak. He couldn't get any answers. But I had warned him. I'd been telling him like for months, like we don't come back from this. And so divorce was finalized approximately six months later. How is your husband now? Is he back in a pastoral role? No, but he is, he serves at his local church. He has the kids involved in church. Um, they are active um, churchgoers. He is gainfully employed. He just suffered a terrible car accident this last October and almost a year ago and broke his back. And it was eye-opener for both of us. It really changed our relationship in that there's bigger fish to fry than other than the water under the bridge. So our relationship improved after that, mostly. I love that you say that you y'all co-parent well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't see that, and when I do see that, um, it's just very inspiring because I know it, it it's probably hard. We communicate pretty well. There's some things he digs his hills in about, and and there's some things I dig my hills in about. But overall, I say we do okay. When you divorce a pastor, how does that affect your faith? Um, I've never been mad at God. Never really questioned my faith in Him or quite faith in Christ, faith in people is definitely, you know, I, I remember having a moment where I, I just looked back and I thought all the people who've ever hurt me in my life or people who call themselves Christians. And that was huge. That was a hard thing, hard pill to swallow. And I also have to understand that as much as I need redemption and grace, so do all the people around me, all the people that have hurt me. So and my faith has never wavered in, in God, but I don't attend church the way my mama would probably prefer. I encourage my kids in their own faith and whatever that looks like. They do attend a Christian school at their dad's insistence. I would prefer not that not to be the case for a lot of different reasons, not necessarily because of the faith. But when you divorce a pastor, I think the big thing is your relationship with church people changes. All my people, all the people, most most of the people, I should say, who were in the church who called called me their friend. I was their pastor's wife were nowhere to be found when I was going through that really hard time through a divorce. And that, that was, that was a struggle. So were you like basically outcast? Yeah. I mean, not, not out. They didn't verbalize that. We were already out of the church because we lost his job. But then a lot of our contact with them kind of came to an end when I filed for divorce. I remember crying in my therapist's office, telling her how isolated I was. My entire family was in Louisiana the only family I have here in Iowa are my in-laws and blood is thicker than water. So they say, and I remember telling her I have no one. And she was like, no one. And I'm like, nope. She's like, who am I? And I'm like, a therapist. And she's like, let's start here. And I've given that same message to other women. From there, I developed some close relationships with some coworkers. And then from there, some mutual friends of people I knew. Um, and then when I entered the dating scene, that kind of changed the looks of my friendship, my friend groups too. It's so hard as an adult to make friends. Mm-hmm, it is. There's an app now called Peanut, the Peanut app. Oh, really? It's, like, <laughs> never... for, it's, for, it's for women to find female friends. I might need to use that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm great at making friends. I've never had a problem making friends. It was being willing to put myself out there because being a pastor's wife, I was always trained and felt so guarded and letting myself be very vulnerable because people couldn't see our dark and scary. And um, so that that's what the big hurdle was for me and making friends was like, just letting all that subside and just saying like, this is just who I am. I'm just Tiffany. I'm not, I'm nobody's wife. I'm no, I'm not a pastor's wife. I'm not 
I'm just me. And figuring out who me, who that is, was a big part of that. But just when I started just presenting myself as just as authentic as possible, that was a game changer for me and making friends. That kind of goes into my next question. I know for many people, when they divorce, it it often seems like they have this period of personal growth and self-discovery. And mm-hmm. um, I can see the happiness in you, like just from, you know, like you look so much happier now. Yeah. How has divorce changed you? Going through the divorce was also on the tail end of graduate school, which was incredibly empowering. Also had weight loss surgery, which was also incredibly empowering, taking back my health and I think that with the divorce, it gave me a sense of, you know, I'd I'd been with this man since I was a child, 19 years old. We met married at 21. I, my entire adult life up until until that point was revolved around him. And so it it gave me a sense of like rediscovery of who I am. Things like what kind of music do I really like? What kind of movies do I really want to watch? And, um, it, it was empowering, but also incredibly trying because I had to be self-sufficient for the first time in my life. And, but, you know, I'm a lot stronger than I ever really realized. I've been through hell and back in my lifetime. And all of those things just culminated to like, this is my moment to shine. I didn't go through all of that for, to be a weak, weak person. And so divorce was just another one of those things that gave me like a sense of like power. Like this is just another thing that we're going to, I'm, I'm going to get through and um, to me, it was a ma- really just a matter of figuring out what what that looked like, who Tiffany is single, who Tiffany is as a mom without their dad in the home. Being happy was never about not having him, but for the first time in my life, having me. Wow. There, you're saying so many things that I'm like, oh, that's so good. I can tell you're a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> So last thing, I know you recently went through a heartbreak and a reconciliation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, after the divorce, and I'll be honest, I entered the divorce, I entered the dating scene while I was still separated. It just felt like when the kids were with their dad, the house was so lonely, you know? And so I, at prompting of several of my friends, some of my girlfriends actually create, my coworkers created I mean, my first dating profile and I hated it. So I deleted it and I was like, well, if we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And so I being in dating for the first time, like in like 20 something years, like it's crazy. And so I was like completely lost. And, but on Facebook dating of all things and um, had, talking to a few people. And on this one particular Wednesday, I was talking to a guy and, you know, just kind of going, doing the thing, going back and forth, like getting to know each other, talking about likes and dislikes and blah, blah, blah. And, um, I'd worked though on Wednesdays at that time, I worked 12 hour days. And so I had stopped by Chick-fil-A and I picked up an iced tea and got to my work parking lot and dropped this tea and spilled it everywhere. And I was so mad. And I remember just pulling up my phone and texting the first person I had been talking to, which was him and said, I just dropped my tea and I just wanted a tea. And he's like, I'll bring you a tea. And I was like, would you really like, and this for me was like a little, like, this is my personality showing a little bit. I was like, okay. Like, I didn't think he really would, but I was going to let him try. And he did. I didn't know it at the time. He lived 
45 minutes away. You drove oh 45 goodness. minutes to go through Chick-fil-A drive through and bring me an iced tea. And so that's the first time we met, um, Craig and I met. And I remember walking back in. I walked in, walked to his car. We he said we just had pleasantries and he gave me my tea and he drove off. It was nothing. I mean, like I was very attracted to him immediately. And um, I walk in and my coworker, I said, oh, girl, I'm in trouble. And she's like, why? And I was like, I don't know. There's something there. And Craig and I dated. Um, it, it was very quickly. I knew like he was the one I wanted to be with. So I, I deleted my Facebook dating app and I just told all these other poor unsuspecting suckers like it was not going to work out. And um we started dating and it was exclusive and we met each other's kids pretty quickly. And I lived in a larger Metro area and he lives in a smaller rural area outside of the Des Moines area. And I had just finished graduate school, was looking for a therapy job. I was working as a substance abuse counselor and I found a job in his town. So then I started driving back and forth and he said, why don't we move in together? And I was like, oh boy, that's a big step. So I sold my home and me and the kids moved in with him. And we got engaged. That was in December of 2021. By May of 2022, we were engaged to be married. He'd asked all the children if we he could ask me to marry him. And they all were like, yes, please. And so we got engaged in May and the plan was to get married in September of 2022. In August, Craig broke up with me and he, I had just had surgery. So I alluded to my weight loss surgery earlier. I'd had tummy tuck surgery to take off some extra skin. I was recovering and, um, he came in and just said, I don't want to get married. I, this isn't right. I've got some things I need to work on. And it lasted, the breakup lasted about two days before he finally just was like, I'm done. I was absolutely devastated. It was probably the worst pain of my life. I think I grieved more from this breakup than I did my miscarriage from my infertility, from my divorce. I had kept hearing like you have three great loves of your life. And I thought Craig was it. I thought he was the love, greatest love. I thought he was the greatest love of my life. I always knew, like, if I was going to be treated by a man in any kind of way, this was it. He, We were good. Until the moment we broke up, we never had issues. We had great communication. He made me laugh. We were best friends. We had no issues. All signs pointed to go. No, Everyone in our whole world was blindsided. Our children, our best friends, our best friends did not even suspect anything. And I, for the probably the third, for, probably for the fourth time. I did not go through depression after my divorce. After my baby girl was born, I had some postpartum depression, but I went through a very serious depression. Probably for the third time, I contemplated suicide in my lifetime. Um, but because I thought, how how can I do this to my kids? How can I how can I leave them homeless? How could I have done that? Because I sold my home to move in with him. And then, I, and he offered, he's like, you can stay here as long as you want. And I was like, there's no way I'm staying here. And through coworkers, I found a home. I was able to purchase pretty quickly, got back on my feet and just do what I do. I just kept moving. And, you know, there's this, this adage, people say, do it scared. Um, I tell my daughter, a lot of the times I tell other people, like you have to feel it on your feet. I did not have time to 
wallow. I just had to feel all that I was feeling while on my feet. Um, I had to keep moving. I had to keep working. I had to keep healing. Until into that um, breakup, I moved into my new home. My nine-year-old son broke his arm. My 15-year-old son broke his ankle. Their dad broke his back. And it was just like, oh my I, goodness. Couldn't, I couldn't take any more. I really, I remember having a moment where like, literally do not know how much more I can take. And I've been through hell and back in my lifetime, but this is this is it for me. Like I can't endure anymore. I don't know how I'm going to keep on going, but I did. I just kept going. I showed up to work every day with my, to show show up for my clients and just did the thing, just did the hard things regardless of what that felt like. Long story short, I started dating again. Like my friends are like, just get back out there. And Craig and I had mutual friends. His best friends were my best friends. And so after the breakup, that remained true. And so that was that was hard. But um, I still had a great group of friends who were very supportive of me. And I still stayed in touch enough so that I could have the kids. Craig has three kids who are my kids' age, and they're best friends. And so I'd have them here and there. And then there'd be months where the kids wouldn't see each other, and we'd try to see them, get them together here and there. But back in... So I dated, dated off and on here and there. And then July, Craig messages me. And so backstory, I'd gotten some messages or my other friends were like, hey, Craig's messaging us apologies. Like he's saying, sorry, his ex-wife and I had developed a very, very close friendship so I could keep tabs on the kids. And she was like, Craig apologized to me. And and I was like mad. I'm like, where's my apology? After everything we've been through. And finally I got it. And he just said, I'd, he, he, I'm, I'm not going to say all the details because it's his story to tell, but long story short, he did some soul searching, was in therapy. And through our discussions, um, he, he's like, I just want to be friends so we can get the kids together. He never led with like, let's get back together or anything. It was just an apology. It was just remorseful. And I kind of challenged that. And I'm like, if you're so remorseful, I want to see your face. I want you to look me in the eyes when you're saying you're sorry. And so he did. He um, a day trip with me one time. We talked a lot. And um, by the end of that trip, we knew we were still very much in love and wanted to try again, wanted to work it out. And we told the kids and they were like, so happy. And I went on vacation with my kids right after that. We had just gotten back together and I left (laughs) and it took me, I was gone a week and I I took every moment of that vacation to really reflect and like, is this really what I want to do? Is this risk? Because when you've been hurt before and to put yourself out there, like shame you, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, that's shame on me. And I knew that, like I knew that, but I just could not shake this idea that where there's remorse and forgiveness and grace are, and love still abounds, then I can give this a second chance. And that's where I was at. I was like, I still, I still deeply love this man, the greatest love of my life, I believe. And I have so much forgiveness and grace for him. I want to give this a second chance. And so I knew, but I had to lay it out all out for him. And I, I just explained several things. And Craig said, I will sell my house tomorrow. I'll move wherever you want to move. We'll do whatever it takes it's supposed to be me and you. And he did. He sold his house within the week. We bought a house um, the week after we got back, after I got back from vacation, we actually just moved into it this last weekend. But in order to do that, <laughs> he knew like I wasn't going to take those risks again because I gam- I'm not a gambler. And so he said, well, then it only makes sense that we do what we were supposed to do a year ago and go get married. And so we did. We went to this beautiful historic courthouse down in Des Moines and I had a little dress I ordered offline and took our 
two of our best friends and he and I went and got married at the courthouse on September 8th. And yeah, so there's that. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm glad that we get to end this on a happy note. I know that doesn't mean that you get to sail off into the sunset without any hardships ever again in your life. Reflecting back on everything you've been through, what do you, how do you feel about encountering hardships going forward? I think that something that's really important for me is to not let hardships harden me. I've been hardened in the past and I just refuse to let that happen. I'm, I want to be happy and I choose happy. And no matter what hard things come my way, I refuse to let them determine who I am as a person. Um, my trials don't dictate my character. I'm blessed because I get to be who I am in spite of all of that. Not necessarily because of all that, but in spite of all of that. And um, I'm grateful that my kids will get to see a mom who's been through a lot of hard things who's still good who's still kind and and generous. And I get to pour into people on a daily basis and therapy to say like, yeah, bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens every day to good people. And you still get to choose to be good. Thank you so much for doing this. This is great. Thanks for joining us today on This Is My Story. If you'd like to be a guest on our show or know someone that has an inspiring story they'd like to share, Please visit us online at thisismystorypodcast.com and fill out the contact us form. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more inspiring stories, make sure to hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. This has been Tiffany's story. What's yours?